Chapter Twenty Eight of The Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twenty Eight. The days grew longer and longer, but there was a little life on the banks again. Now and then a boat would come in with four or five hundred fish, quite extra wealth. So it was going to be a record year after all, despite its having been so uneven on the whole. There were now good times for the peddlers, too, and even Jacob had bought himself a blue duffel coat and a gold ring for his own finger. Lars was sitting reading in the hut in the evening. It was history this time, and a book of that sort is a wonderful thing. You open it and begin to read, and all at once the hut is gone and you are among emperors and kings, indeed among people who died many hundred years ago. You are with an army on an expedition into Asia. You see the French king's head cut off and fall into the street, where Tom, Dick, and Harry play ball with it. Strange times! And the fisher-boy was taking part in it all, while the other inmates of the hut sat mending their nets. Once or twice he raised his head and looked at them as if from a great distance. His father was sitting up by the wall with a number of nets that had to be mended. A little help would not come amiss, but Lars was far away in other kingdoms and lands in fine company, and thinking of becoming a fine gentleman himself. Every book he read took him farther and farther away. What Christopher thought about it he did not say, for it did not concern anyone else. Shall I help you, father? Oh, no, there is no more than I can manage myself. The boy knew it was pride that made his father say this, and he was on the point of rising to go and help him, but the book held him. He would read only a few more pages, and the hut vanished, and once more he was far away, in other lands and other times. Later in the evening he raised his head once more and came down to earth with eyes that could see his comrades in the hut. Was he going to become like them? he thought. It was not that he thought himself too good, for his father and grandfather and all the others were good enough. That was not the reason. But an ambitious lad who became a fisherman had no paradise before him toward which he was travelling. Even if he should one day become a headman, what was that, after all? The headman toiled through a life in poverty like the other men in his boat. He was the slave whom tradesmen and banks, middlemen and merchants, here and abroad, sent out to bring the fish ashore to them. The banks and the tradesmen became rich, the middlemen and the merchants became rich, the station king was rich, but there was one who was poor all his life, and that was the fisherman. Would Lars go in for that? He tried to read again, but now it was a different history. It was not about kings and wars and revolutions. No, it was the story of his own class through hundreds and thousands of years. An army of millions of weather-beaten men passed before him. They had drawn riches from the sea to make others wealthy. They capsized and were never heard of again. They became lepers and suffered a living death in some hut. They dragged through an old age, crippled with rheumatism, after the long years of hardship on the sea. A good year like the present one was a streak of silver in their grey life. The fisherman bought himself a ring, and lived for some days in a bower of roses, 
but then came the seven lean years and the same distress in the grey cottages along the grey coast this was what the boy saw these bearded men now sitting in the hut had once been young like himself but it would be impossible now for them to sit as he was doing dreaming of swinging himself up into a better position it was too late for them but there was still time for himself the book was his salvation it would be good-bye to Cornelis, Lars thought to himself. They would not long be comrades, after all. Once more he lost himself in other times and other countries, while the netting shuttles danced about him. During these days Jakob limped about, so rich and important that he did not know what to do. If his wealth had amounted to only half what it was, he would have bought a few barrels of the most expensive brandy and treated the whole station— but this was too much. He lost sight of land, his head was confused enough already, and to drink now, impossible. He went out on the sea every day like the others, it was not that. He stood cleaning fish with his men as long as there was a fish left to open, and so he was not proud, but when a man is padded all round with banknotes he has not much peace, either day or night." So this was what it was to be a rich man. Yes, but the aggravating part of it was that he felt just the same as before. His short leg had not become any longer. He looked just the same when he saw his reflection in the water. He could not eat more than his fill, and if any one were to come and offer him expensive flowers with his bread instead of cheese, he was quite able to pay for them. But would they taste nice? As soon as they came in from the sea and had finished with the fish, he began to adorn himself. He washed himself and shaved his upper lip, and treated himself to new underclothing from the shop, and last of all put on his blue duffel coat and his ring, and there he was. Then he stood still and tried to feel whether this was what it was like to be a rich man. He now began to limp about and display himself with a beaming face and twinkling brown eyes, and was in a glorious state of confusion. Brandy! Oh, yes, it can brighten the world right enough, but the thought of all one could buy if one only had money enough also makes one see suns and moons and sing. Oh, dear Maria! Oh, ho! There was that big, newly painted Gallias now. Oh, no, he might just as well take a three-master— Perhaps he would be able to buy one like that, and then people would be obliged to call him Captain. He would just like to see them looking down on Jakob. Or should it be a large fish-wharf like the Station King's? People would have to call him a trader, then, or, indeed, a merchant. But what about leaving the sea-flower? No. But there was something else he might do. He could gild her stem and stern, and buy a silk sail. He hummed to himself as he limped about, and continually saw new visions. Oh, dear Maria! Oh, ho! One night he decided that he would build a fine house down in the south, and it should not be painted in the ordinary way, but tattooed like a seaman's hand. And then he would hire two or three people to stand on the beach, and welcome him when he stepped ashore from his Lofoten voyages. One morning a thought struck him. Now that he had become a rich man, he ought surely to associate with his equals. 
he accordingly dressed himself in his duffle coat put his ring on his finger and set out this time he entered the office of the station king himself the gentleman with the red beardless face and yellow eyes was writing at his desk and looked up no fishermen were allowed in the office everything was settled out in the shop what did the fellow want Jacob began to fidget with his southwester, to screw up his eyes and make himself irresistible, as he had done to the commander. Oh, he only wanted to look in, he said, and hear how the other was. The gentleman behind the desk opened his mouth, stared, and put his pen behind his ear. And then he wanted to know, Jacob went on, fidgeting still more with his southwester, whether the station owner would do him a service. It was a strange thing that when one was prosperous, one liked to show oneself in a different light. Well, the fact was he was sufficiently well off to think of giving a party, or a ball, as they called it. He had hired the whole of the hotel and all the food and drink that it contained, and now he wanted to know if the station owner would condescend to be one of the party, and perhaps his lady too. He had intended to ask the doctor and the priest and the commander, and he thought that in the future there should be more friendliness and intercourse between those who owned a little more than the spoon with which they ate. Not a muscle of the station king's face moved. At last he said, "'Isn't your name Jakob?' "'Yes, it was, Jakob Olsson. "'Very well. You were the guarantor for nets and clothes sold to a Hitteroy man last year.' Yes, Jacob remembered that. The man was drowned, said the station king, beginning to turn over the leaves of the register. Yes, God have mercy on him. He was drowned last spring. And he left next to nothing, and his debt is not paid. Your share of it as guarantor is one hundred and nineteen kroner and fifty ure. Will you pay it at once? Yes, certainly and Jacob took out his pocket-book and began counting it out. "'Sir and son,' called the station-owner, and a man came in from the shop. "'Just attend to this man, will you? He wants something or other in the shop. Good morning, Mr. Jacob Oson.' Later in the evening the old man was standing in the darkness outside the station-owner's white house, looking at the long row of illuminated windows. He shook his head. How strange it was that no matter how much money a little man had, it was of no earthly use. The big man would only let him in just far enough to get hold of his money, and then he would chuck him out again. Jacob revenged himself that evening, however. He went to the priest's house, and taking off his southwester, he knocked at the door, opened it and entered, turning round on his long leg as he did so. "'Why, it's Jacob!' exclaimed the priest, who was sitting in a rocking-chair reading a newspaper. On this occasion Jacob was humble. He only wanted a little information. How much had the station-owner given to the mission? The priest pushed his spectacles up on to his forehead and looked at Jacob. What did you say? What in the world do you want to know that for? Well, <laughs> because I thought of giving twice as much. The priest gazed at him in blank astonishment. "'If it's the seaman's mission you mean, of course all contributions are thankfully received. How much can you spare, Jacob?' "'Twice as much as the station-owner.' 
<laughs> I can't help laughing, but what if he hasn't given a farthing? Then I'd better give for him as well, said Jacob, producing two large notes. The priest did not take them at once, and Jacob stood holding them out. At last he said, Now, my good friend, I can take that money, but in that case I shall put it into the savings bank for you. For you certainly can't afford to give all that. I know you, fisherman. You can't bear to have any money in your pockets because you're not used to it. But tell me now, how much have you made during the last few weeks? Jacob shook his head. He did not keep accounts. He had not counted up his gains, but he owned a few things, several fully equipped boats, and he was not short of cash either. Well, thank you, said the priest, taking the money, and Jacob said good night, and went out of the room. He put his head in again, however, and added, Perhaps you'd be good enough to give my respects to the station owner and say that I've paid something into the mission for him. Good night, Jacob. When Jacob was gone, the priest placed the notes in an envelope on which he wrote, The property of Jacob Osan, and put it in a drawer in his writing-table. The day might come when they would be useful to have back. Jacob made his way among the huts in the darkness, humming to himself as he went. Every day is wonderful to a rich man. Today he had put the station-owner himself to shame. That was something to have done. Oh, dear Maria, oh, ho! Oh. He met Cornelis Gumon, and together they went into a bar. Cornelis called for coffee, and Jacob did the same. There was no question of brandy in times such as these. Jacob liked talking to this lad. They called for cigars, and talked and laughed until the room rang with their laughter. Jacob had once been young like this young fellow, and he was also from a small mountain farm. He remembered distinctly what it was like to herd sheep and goats. It was a long time ago. Once he had been on the point of marrying into a big farm. He was not lame then, oh no, but at the last moment she took someone else. Yes, yes. She was still living, but it was years since he had seen her last. How the time passes! But it was jolly to sail south every time to the place where she lived. But then one day, well, there was an end to it all. He might as well own, however, that she was not exactly rich. It was as much as she could do to make ends meet, what with rates and debt and a duffer of a husband. Jacob had thought not once but a hundred times of sending her a banknote or two or three. He had been in a few record fishing years, and could have paid all her debts, but he never got farther than to the steps of the post-office. He never managed to send the money off. Suppose she refused to accept it and sent it back again? She was a proud woman. But beautiful fifty years ago. Ah, me! You should have seen her. And Jacob's brown eyes grew soft as velvet with the recollection of summer and youthful days. Brandy warms the body, but prosperity makes the heart blossom. That evening Jacob felt he must have someone to confide in, and still more, someone to do good to. And what about you, Cornelis? Aren't you going to get married soon? Cornelis pushed his cap back from his forehead and laughed. I've been thinking of it, he said. He too had a few things to talk to a comrade about. 
He would first of all have to cultivate their land before he could bring a woman to the farm. And the buildings would have to be done up. He would paint the house yellow and the cowshed red. But it was the money. He had made a little this year, but then there was all he owed. To tell the truth, it was not easy. Jacob asked him if he might lend him a hundred dollars. Cornelis shook his head. He owed enough already. "'Will you take the money as a little present?' Cornelis shook his head again. He was not going to beg if he could help it. His eyes flashed almost angrily beneath his knitted brows. At this Jacob brought down his fist upon the table, making the cups and saucers dance. "'Confound the fellow! Do you think I'm not rich enough to pay for the whole of your rubbishing farm and give you a hundred dollars into the bargain? Huh? Do you think I'm a church mouse?' Do you think I'm a beggar, huh? Have you got five boats with all their nets and other things? How much money have you got about you, you miserable fellow, you? Upon my word, it seems impossible to get rid of a single penny tonight. For a little while they sat and sulked, each smoking in silence and looking straight before him. But then Jacob's face brightened, and he turned to his companion. It was impossible for him to be anything but good-natured this evening. He had now taken it into his head that he would be like a father to Cornelis and help him on, so that he could marry and paint his house and bring the farm into a good state of cultivation. He approached him more cautiously, in order to avoid the risk of having a fist planted between his eyes. In a carefully worded sentence, he asked Cornelis whether he would be able to take him in as a lodger when the time came that he was no longer able to go to sea a little attic or something like that, as big as a Lofoten boat cabin. That would be more than good enough. Oh, yes, said Cornelis. He could promise him that. He could manage that. Yes, but what'll the rent be? There won't be any rent, so you needn't talk about it. We'll talk about it when the time comes. Jacob meant to have the matter settled on the spot, and he would pay the rent now, while he remembered it. How could he tell whether he would have any money when the time came? What was paid was paid. It was money saved, and he would know that he had a roof over his head. Here is five hundred kroner, and if you don't take them, then, damn it all, you're a fool and an idiot, and I swear it too. Cornelis looked at the notes and thought of the farm and of his old white-haired father. There would be new times at Gumon. He accepted the money and pushed it into his breast-pocket, saying as he did so, "'Oh, Jacob, Jacob!' Cornelis had meant to go out on a spree to-night, but he could not go now. There would be changed times now for him, too. While they still sat, some fishermen came in. They were the headmen on the four boats that Jacob had bought before the good fishing began in the fjord. "'There's the king!' exclaimed one of them. It's you we're looking for, Jacob. You'll have a drink, won't you? Jacob shook his head and smiled. He did not want a drink, but he quite understood what the men wanted, and when they sat down at the same table and began to talk about all kinds of things, he smiled again. Did they imagine that he did not see through them? They first wanted to make him drunk, and then buy their boats back for a mere nothing. Well... Perhaps Jacob was as great a fool as you take him for. Try, and then you'll see. 
In another moment they approached the subject. They wanted to know whether he did not think it would be reasonable if they bought their boats and nets back again. That transaction had really been almost what might be called a joke. Could they not talk it over? Oh, dear, yes, by all means talk it over. And the price? That, they supposed, would be the same that he had paid. Just so. Jacob thought so, too, so they were agreed as to the price. But then, about the money, they would have to ask to be allowed to let the debt stand over in the meantime, for what little they had earned while working for him they had already sent home. Jacob smiled once more. The men had talked it over, he could see, among themselves. But he was not a hard bargainer. Stand over? Of course they could let it stand over. He knew perfectly well that he would never see a penny of these men's money, but he waved his hand grandly. Was he a rich man, or was he not? The station king would never have done such a thing, but this was Jacob, not the station king. When he went home that evening he was quite sober. There was a new moon again, and he could see the rows and rows of fish hanging on the lines to dry. Was Jacob drunk? No, but he was excited. His wealth had begun to dwindle, but what of that? He had four boats less than before, but what of that? Had he not still the sea-flower and banknotes all over his body? Four boats given away, a room hired and paid for up at Gumon, and a small fortune given to the mission. This was what it was to be a rich man. Oh, dear Maria, oh, ho! End of chapter 28